0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: Um, my name's Deborah Thorpe. Um, I'm a research, research, researcher here at the Trinity College Long Room Hub. Um, you're more like used to seeing Mark Faulkner standing here, but because he's giving the talk tonight, I've been asked to um, introduce it and then lead the questions afterwards. Um, So Mark became Usher Assistant Professor of Medieval Literature in September 2016. His research interest is in the uses, literary and non-literary, of English between Beowulf and Chaucer, but particularly in the long 12th century, so from 1050 to 1250. Um, So he's pointed out that given this interest, research interest, it's not surprising that his contribution to the Beyond the Book of Kells series um, is, a, a manus- is on a 12th-century manuscript containing some English, um, Trinity College Dublin, MS490. Um, so I'll hand over Mark to, give, to Mark to give his talk. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so I guess I should begin with a bit of a warning. I had to, do, I had to produce various short, snappy descriptions of these manuscripts at various stages assembling this lecture series, Um, for press releases, for pitching articles, that kind of thing. And whenever I got a response to these, I always looked at what the person replying had said about TCD 492, and they never said anything. (laughs) Um, TCD 492 was, I think, in some ways, the ugly sister of this lecture series, but in many ways it's also the most typical medieval manuscript that you'll hear about. If you think about the kinds of claims that are made for the importance of various manuscripts, you hear things like, the manuscript contains texts not preserved in other manuscripts. Trinity 492, in fact, contains a very common text that survives in 176 other manuscripts. You sometimes hear that a manuscript is important because it comes from a period from which few manuscripts survive. That would be one of the claims to fame of Kells. But the 12th century, which TCD 492 comes from, has been described as the greatest period in English book production. You sometimes hear a manuscript is important because it's from a place from which few manuscripts survive. But TCD 492 comes from Berry, And we know that Berry's library, in about 1400, numbered 2,100 volumes. So none of those arguments really hold up. But for all that, I don't think your time is going to be wasted. TCT 492 compels attention. And it compels attention for what it tells us about, not about Bede himself, but about the way that Bede was read in the later Middle Ages, which is a different and perhaps more interesting thing. So with that introduction to 492. so. You've emailed special collections in Trinity, outlined your bona fides and your urge to see TCD 492. You've armed yourself, as any good medieval scholar does, with your weapon, a pencil, of course. You've made your way into the Book of Kells exhibition, headed the wrong way up the stairs to the long room, a third of your mind on avoiding catching the eye of the security guards, a third smug that you can do this, and a third in awe of the sheer magnificence of the long room itself. You pass through the back of the long room down the beautiful wooden stairs to the ground floor and up the rather narrower, more pedestrian ones to the Special Collections reading room, Identified yourself, and be presented with your manuscript. Your initial thought? It doesn't look very medieval. And the binding, in fact, is post-medieval. It's 17th century and not uncommon thing uh, when you're looking at medieval manuscripts. Now equipped with the necessary white gloves, you open the manuscript. Your eye immediately falls on the annotation in the top corner. You think it's something unique, interesting and priceless, you transcribe it and see it says November 1947 and realise perhaps it's not that interesting after all. But eventually you get This is the first page proper of TCD 492, and if I blow up the top the bit, we can see we have something in red, the title of this work. Incipit Praefatio venerabilis bellae Presbyterian Libro Ecclesiastica Historia Gentis Conglorum. Here begins the preface of the venerable priest, Bede, to the book concerning the ecclesiastical history of the English people. The work is Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English people. So who was Bede? In a sense, he wasn't either of these people, uh, because these are both post-medieval depictions of Bede. Uh, there's no way of knowing if he had quite such a hooked nose as in the uh, Nuremberg depiction on the right, or uh, looked quite so generically saintly as in the Greek icon on the right. We go back a little um, Take a slightly different approach. We could look at the um, the tomb of Bede in Durham Cathedral, with the uh, immemorial Latin inscription "Hic sunt in fossa vedi venerabilis ossa," here in the grave are the bones of the venerable Bede. Or we could go to these, uh, which may well be the earliest medieval likenesses of Bede in a manuscript in the British Library, from 1175 to 1200. Bede is not the impressive-looking bird holding the crozier but the one crawling at his feet. But all of these are some centuries after Bede. Like many early medieval figures, we have no likeness. Perhaps the closest we can get is this which is a cast of Bede's skull recently relocated in Cambridge University uh, Museum of Anthropology. Uh, it's a cast of the skull, not the actual skull, as you can tell by the inscription on the bottom, the bead." Um, and it's almost certainly a cast of the skull that they thought was Bede's in the 10th century, 10th, late 10th, early 11th century. Not necessarily Bede's own skull, but the one they thought was his skull in the late 10th and early 11th century. That's as close to Bede as we can probably get. Nonetheless, his work survives. He was a tremendously productive author, producing over over 55 separate works, encompassing biblical commentaries works of chronology and history, rhetoric, and even a treatise on spelling. Why was he venerable? Uh, It's sometimes suggested that this is because he was not quite a saint, that venerable was one step before you made it to being a saint. But at least historically, the more plausible explanation is it's simply an honorific adjective. He was pretty good, and they called him venerable. So he produced... This great number of works, but he's best known for the work in the manuscript I'm talking about today, his Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, his Church History of the English people. It is specifically an ecclesiastical history, it's a history of the church rather than a history of the English people in general. And he completes it in 17 in, in 731. It's in five books, five books like the five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a structural uh, feature that lends um, authority to his own work. It's chronologically organized, covering Roman Britain, the departure of the Romans, the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes, and so on through till 731. It's the major source to today, of early medieval English history. And it also, incidentally, contains a lot about Ireland due to the close connection between the Irish and Northumbrian churches in the 7th and 8th century. So that's Bede, but back to our manuscript. The Historia in its five books is a long work, and it's not until Folio 175 verso that we get to its end and the beginning of another text a text here described as the Epilogium de Obitu Eximii Doctoris Bede, Cuthbert's text On the Death of Bede, a letter describing the manner in which Bede passed on. Dying well was very important in the Middle Ages, as they imagine today. That text is relatively short, And on 177 rect on the right here, we get, get the beginning of the final text in the manuscript, which is a Latin translation of an Old English text which doesn't really have a fixed title in scholarship but is usually known as the De Sanctis and is a description of English saints and where their bodies are to be found. The manuscript as a whole. Then comes to an end only a few leaves later on, on fairly 180 verso, with the presumably blank second column to the right of this slide, presumably having been cut away at some stage by someone who needed something to jog down their medieval shopping list. Of. So, thus, our manuscript contains three texts one very long, the bead, and two quite short. Cuthbert's account of bead's death and the concerning saints detailing their resting places. So what What else else do we know about this book? We know from the array of uh, alphabetic and numeric capitals at the top of the first leaf, that this is a book from Berry. It's not the B2.4 that matters, or the B3. It's the much bigger B, which is the beginning of a Berry library shelf mark. You'll believe that much more if I show you one that survives rather better uh, from a manuscript in Lambeth Palace, B318. And you can see that that B is very similar to that B there. And the, there was probably a full press mark in the Trinity manuscript that was at some point erased to uh, disguise the fact that the book had once belonged to someone other than whoever it belonged to and was doing the erasing. So it's a Berry manuscript by provenance. It's also a Berry manuscript by origin. The script has been identified as that of Berry in the mid. 12th century so it comes from very St Edmunds, this is uh, the largest surviving bit of the abbey in Bury, it's the former gatehouse to the abbey and the fact that this was the gatehouse gives you a sense of how impressive the actual abbey must have been at one stage the text the Historia Ecclesiastica was widely copied in the 12th century I mentioned before there are 176 other surviving copies, and a large number of those come from the 12th century and from England. Why the interest? The answer comes back to the historical events depicted here and in the Bayer Tapestry more largely the uh, 11th century in England saw the Norman Conquest and a new set of overlords taking over control of England's government and churches. It's easy for us to underestimate how precious information about earlier England must have been for those conquerors. And Bede was a key source. But such information really was scarce. The historian Robert Bartlett memorably catches twelfth century monks' difficult scrabble for understanding the earlier history of their institutions, when he describes them as, quote, like a drunk after a particularly spectacular night of indulgence, waking up to find a muddle of objects, some familiar like a pile of clothes lying in the corner, some less explicable like the parrot cage. Or the note in the unfamiliar hand. The past really was quite opaque to 12th century monks. And Bede's role as an Alcaeltzer is evident in several ways. Shortly after the conquest, a monk called Aldwin, who was prior of Winchcombe, read Bede's ecclesiastical history, and with two companions, Reinfried and Ethelwig, decided to set off to the north to restore monasticism, as he had found it described in Bede. Similar, a similar illustration of Bede's importance in the 12th century is that his testimony alone was often sufficient to legitimise the retrospective establishment of saints' cults. So Bede mentions two saints called Eber and Oswin. Nothing else was known about them, but saints' cults for them were established purely on the testimony of Bede. Bede doesn't have anything to do with the most famous example of this from the 12th century, which is Amphibalus, whose very existence is owed to a grammatical mistake Um, in in reading the Latin life of St. Alban, which reported that Alban had been martyred cum Amphibalo, wearing a cloak, which a 12th century reader apparently misunderstood as with an otherwise unknown St. Amphibalus, which necessitated the invention of a whole backstory for this furious saint. But that's the kind of power that Bede had, even if he is not ultimately the respons- responsible for Amphibalus. Bede's utility to these 12th century monks in our manuscript is accompanied by, is augmented by the two other texts it survives with, one providing additional information on the saints, not covered by Bede, the ones who rest in England elsewhere, and the other on saints, uh, on, and the other augmenting uh, Bede's own claim to authority by showing what a good death he had merited. so was this what our manuscript was actually used and here to answer that question we can turn to the evidence of annotation and I'll draw my examples here from one particular chapter of uh, the Historia Ecclesiastica book 4 chapter 25 which is about events that occurred in the 7th century in a particular abbey. I'm coy about which abbey because the medieval reader uh, who annotated it was apparently concerned that himself was being unclear about which abbey it was. So you can just about see, maybe above the second column on that page, there's some annotation. The uh, lower of the two, the one immediately above the text block, reads id est Coldingham et est in Scotia. That is Coldingham and it is in Scotland. Why did the reader feel the need to add this? The reason seems to be because Bede um, had given the name of the abbey in a rather obscure way. He says uh, the abbey was in the place which they call the city of Coludus. Now, the city of Coludus may well be a fine etymological translation of Caldingham, but it doesn't help the late medieval monk orient himself as to what and where Bean is actually talking about here. So the annotator, for the benefit of future readers, the generous soul that he was, adds such information. Such a concern for clarification recurs throughout the annotations to this particular chapter. The annotation above the one I just talked about, which is even fainter in the top uh, margin, can be read as de abstinencia adabnani concerning the abstinence of Non. So this is a summary basically it's telling you what's on this page and it's a very common kind of medieval annotation the kind of helpful gloss that saves you having to read the whole thing it just tells you at a glimpse of what is being talked about here it's not i should say the famous adam who was abbot of who you may have heard of it's another adam not otherwise attested who his chief claim to fame seems to be that he only ate on two days of the week Sundays and the Thursdays. So uh, there is what Bede has to say about him. Now, in this monastery, there was an Irishman named Adadnon, who needed a life of consonants. So you can see that there's what we would call, borrowing a French phrase, a scene de voix." that thing that looks like a big apostrophe indicating that this. Annotation, the margin belongs with the text, much lower down on the page. If we turn to the next leaf of this chapter, we see some more uh, annotation. Um, Bede says, in his youth, he, that's Adonai, had been guilty of a certain sin. You're probably wondering what the sin was, but it's not specified by bead, so maybe it was curiosity. But anyhow, the annotator thought this worthy of note, and writes "nota." Note right above it. On that same page, down in the bottom margin, we have another annotation. It est virens, that is vigorous. Another scene de renvoi, taking us down to the text uh, itself. Uh, the bit of text where uh, Bede reports out of non saying, I am a youth in years and strong in body. Virens explains vegetus. and You can just see the trace of the scene de renvoi there. So all of this goes to demonstrate that this manuscript and Bede's ecclesiastical history was closely read in the later Middle Ages by readers who wanted to know where the action was happening and what exactly was happening. It was also regarded it seems as a source of useful stories like that of Avignon from the distant past which could be used in some context, and from external evidence we know that context is likely sermons or uh, any kind of moral discourse that needed exemplification through uh, stories. But this is really the 14th, 15th century. What in the 12th century, when it was copied, is this how Bede was being read then? For that, and to answer that and this return, To the beginning of the work. So, this is the first page of the uh, Ecclesiastical History Proper, Book 1, Chapter 1, after you've had the preface and the table of contents to Book 1. And you can maybe just about see faint traces of something running in. right-hand margin here. It'll be easier if I blow it up a bit. So we have in the right-hand margin, among other things, we have just about, you can maybe see some of these letters, the word Chronas written, which is the Old English for whales. And in the text block itself, we have the Old English word seolas, seals animals that swim in the sea, um, annotating uh, a passage in which Bede says seals as well as dolphins are frequently captured, and even whales. He's talking about the coast of Britain. I don't think that's true anymore, but it may have been true in the 7th century, that dolphins and whales could be captured off the coast of Britain. This annotator's hand, unlike the late medieval annotators I've been talking about before, are contemporary with the production of the manuscript in mid 12th century hands. The annotations are found in two positions, interlinearly, like here, so between the lines, and in the margin, um, written perpendicular to the text proper. In total, there are seven of these annotations, one of which is, as I said, interlinear, and the others all written in the outer margin, perpendicular to the text block. These annotations require some further discussion, and in particular, three aspects of them are very unusual. One is the fact that they are in English, the um, 12th century is a period from which, it, in which English was not very often written. Second, their location on the page needs some discussion. The ones in the outer margin are very, very unusual indeed, um, and nobody I've asked has been able to provide me with a parallel for this positioning. Um, and it's very easy to imagine that a careless Uh, post-medieval owner or indeed medieval owner might just have chopped them off in the process of trimming the book down and the third thing that requires a bit more discussion is what their purpose is why is a latin text being annotated with english in the 12th century and what is the function of these english glosses in the same way that i've talked about the function of the late medieval glosses the first thing to note as we begin to answer these questions is that the manuscript does, in fact, contain some other English. And that is in uh, the course of the first of the two short texts at the end, Cuthbert's Letter on the Death of Bede, which contains the um, poem that Bede supposedly recited on his deathbed in English. So this is the, te- the text of it from the manuscript beginning for Tham at the top. This, however, is very badly copied, and, and one example of that is uh, these words, which, though here presented as three words, managed to put both uh, word divisions in totally the wrong place, suggesting this was not copied by someone who had much understanding of English and it therefore can't really be considered that this provides any context in which to see the other glosses if we think about the 12th century more broadly it's very unusual to find English as a language of annotation as we do here to understand the choice of language we therefore need to look at the annotations more closely The seven annotations fall into two groups. One uh, to Book 1, Chapter 1, which you have already seen, the first chapter of the Ecclesiastical History, which is concerned with the geography of Britain. And two to uh, Book 1, Chapter 7, Bede's account of the martyrdom of St. Alban. This is uh, still from uh, Book 1, Chapter 1, on the geography of Britain. And we can may- maybe just about see as an annotation there. If I blow it up, it's a bit easier to see. That and the word is lock us," the Old English word for whelks. Um, so clearly, an annotator quite interested in the options on the seafood menu. <laughs> um, And it relates to Bede's comment that there's also the great abundance of whelks to be found in Britain. The interest in the geographical... The glosses to the geographical description of Britain are almost all simple, single-word lexical explanations. So he gives the English equivalent for a number of... um, items of marine life, and on one case, gives the measurements of Britain in English as well. Here, the annotator seems to largely be interested in explaining the um, geographical features and the the, the natural life of Britain in English. The the, the two annotations to the, the master of St. Alban, on the other hand, are rather more interesting. So this is the second uh, page of Book 1, Chapter 7. And again, maybe if you're getting your eye in now, you can see there's a small gloss uh, in the margin up the top. Again, if I blow it up, you can maybe see it a bit more clearly. It says, uh, Muruk, a monk. This gloss is more complicated to explain, though, because Bede's text does not mention a monk here. Um, in this passage, um, Bede is describing how Alban was converted by a certain cleric who he's invited to stay at his house. Bede doesn't say very much about the cleric, except that when the house is subsequently raided, Alban disguises himself as the cleric so that he should be arrested and not his visitor. To do this, like Sherlock Holmes, he puts on the clothes of a man, the garments, that is to say, the cloak which the cleric was wearing. So why would the annotator have written monk to a pass- against a passage which is describing a cleric? Monk and cleric may sound like synonyms to us, but in the Middle Ages they are quite distinct types of religious life, certainly in the 12th century. Monks are chaste and live in monasteries, clerics are not necessarily chaste and live in the world. Trying to explain that mystery led me to another text, the Old English translation of Bede's Ecclesiastical History, where the Latin cloak, which Bede calls a caracalla, is translated as munuk gagirabon monastic clothing, which is an interesting correspondence that an English annotator should write monk against the passage in which the English translator had described the person as wearing monastic. Clothing, even if there was no precedent for that in the bead. And on further investigation, all six annotations proved to correspond exactly with the Old English bead, suggesting that that was the Gossage's source. <coughs> so then we need to know something about the Old English bead if we're going to develop this argument a little further. Um, to here are two manuscripts of the Old English bead, uh, one in Oxford, one in London. Trinity doesn't have one, I regret to say, though maybe TCD 492 should be added to the list in its glosses. Um, and this is a, a probably 9th century translation of um, the Latin bead into English. It was formerly associated with King Alfred the Great, who was thought to have been a king who commissioned a great deal of (coughs) translations, an idea which has has gone into abeyance a bit recently. In fact, this probably predates Alfred by about 20 or 30 years. But nonetheless, it's an English translation of of the Latin text. And in every case where our glossator attacks TCD 492's Latin, he does it in the words of this translation from 250 years earlier. And what's more, the spelling of the annotations in Trinity 492 suggests he was using a very early manuscript, one equally as early as these two, both of which are circa 900. So even with that identification of the source, we're still left with two mysteries. Why do you annotate a Latin text with a translation made from it? And why do you take such an unusual approach to positioning the annotations? Why do you put them in the outer margin in such an inconspicuous, almost invisible place? To take the first of those, why do you annotate a text with a translation made from it. That's quite a paradox, because if the translation has been well done, then it will contain no additional information. But if the translation has been badly done, then any discrepancies with its source will reflect its inadequacies and are hardly candidates for being copied in backings of the text proper as some kind of important additional information. How do we square the circle then? One possibility is in a particular feature of the Old English Bede translation, which is apparent here in a manuscript in Cambridge. Bede, in writing in the Latin, often uses the first person. So he says, I, Bede, mass priest and servant of Christ, send greetings to the most beloved King Caol in the first few lines. And he uses first person pronouns elsewhere in the, this text. He talks about himself. Now, a translator today would probably respond to that by converting it to Bede says. Bede says, uh, Bede, mass priest and servant of Christ, sends greetings to the most beloved. Okay, eliminate the first person pronoun. But the old English translator left the first person pronouns in. So he rendered it as I, Bede, mass priest and servant of Christ, send greetings to the most beloved. Okay. One result of this is that the Old English can actually appear to be the work of Bede too. So if you just casually looked at that first page, you would assume that this is Bede writing in English. And this is not wildly impossible because another thing that the letter um, McCuff that writes about Bede's death says is that the activity Bede chose to devote his final hours to was writing translating the Gospel of John into English. So even though all of Bede's surviving works are in Latin, there were hints that he had also produced texts in English. So the explanation for the inclusion of these glosses is perhaps that the annotator thought that the Old English Bede was also a version of the Historia Ecclesiastica written by Bede and therefore contained independent information to the Latin text with which the Latin text could be supplemented. So that's maybe the first mystery solved. The second mystery i allude you to is why does he take such an unusual approach to positioning the annotations in the outside margin? Again, answering it is difficult. But perhaps it's the ambiguous textual status of these annotations that prompts such an unusual positioning. They're not glosses, because they don't correspond directly to anything in beads Latin, and they're not corrections, because it would have been impossible to decide whether the supposed English bead or the, supposed, or the genuine Latin bead was the correct version. Hence, the annotator is forced to adopt a highly unusual strategy for positioning this information. So, as you reach the manuscript's end, close it, and admire its post-medieval backboard, what should your conclusion be? Linguists and lexicologists, people who make dictionaries, have a saying chaque mot à son histoire, each word has its own history. We might revise that as chaque manuscrit à son histoire, each manuscript has its own history. In the case of TCD 492, that history would include its copying as a kind of handbook to the Anglo-Saxon past, its quarrying as a source of historical information in the later medieval period, its annotation from the Old English Bede shortly after it was copied, apparently in the belief that Bede had also written the Old English work, that then any additional information recorded there had his authority and should be incorporated into a manuscript of the Latin. So while it can tell us very little about Bede himself, it can tell us a great deal about how his work was received in the later Middle Ages, which is a fundamentally different, and in the grand scheme of things, perhaps more important thing. And if I failed to convey that in a two-sentence soundbite when compiling press releases, then hopefully I've succeeded when giving a rather longer leash of 50 minutes. Thank you.